Well, some of you have asked already, but I'll go ahead and address it. Some of you said, I thought by now you'd be out of this boot. Um, I wish I was for a couple reasons. It's a little bit embarrassing. I actually can be out of this walking boot, but I had a little bit of a confusion with the moving company on the way here. Specifically, all my shoes are on a moving truck that isn't arriving till about Thursday or Friday. So I am down to this one shoe that's on the right foot. And so I figured, I guess I might as well wear this. Also, to be honest, in my healing process, walking at any kind of distance, I kind of need this. And I didn't know how much walking around I was going to be doing today, so it kind of worked out. I might as well just wear it. Maybe next week I will be wearing two pairs of different shoes. I don't know. Especially since, oh, excuse me. When I'm wearing this, I have to wear this level up thing on the other shoe that looks really ridiculous, but it helps keep everything in balance. So that's why I appear like I do. Um, apologies over. <laughs> that's awkward and embarrassing. But anyway, here's, here's, here's how I am. But I'm glad to be standing. I was walking through a park uh, back in Brea um, after a concert in the park thing. I was walking through uneven ground, so I had the boot on. Some lady said, oh, I had to wear one of those. They're terrible, aren't they? And I said, actually, considering everything I've been through, I'm grateful to be walking. <laughs> I really, really am. And she goes, oh, I understand. And so hopefully I helped her be a little more positive about whatever she had to go through before seeing me. Um, the journey here has been kind of interesting. Um, I think I got a few pictures I can show you. So yeah, there's a big moving truck outside my condo in, in Brea, California. That guy's already tired. As you can see, he's moving all my stuff into it. So yeah, all my shoes is in one of those boxes somewhere. Um, <laughs> it's, it was a little bit challenging. Um, I mean, yeah, they did all the work, but any of you have ever moved? Yeah, so driving away from there, right by Wiener Schnitzel, by 57 Freeway, by this, by that, it was, it was a mix of emotions. Excited to get here, sad to be leaving, but, um, and also Crystal was coming down with a cold the whole time. That's why she's not here. She's not feeling very well, um, but she sends her love and is eager to come next week. But uh, once they filled that thing off and drove off, we started a long journey here. We stopped in Las Vegas, Nevada, and uh, hit the M&M store, as you can see, and the Coke store, where you can sample different kinds of soda from different parts of, around the world. I don't, I'm not entirely sure, but I don't think anyone has ever left Las Vegas, Nevada, saying this was the best vacation ever because they hit the M&M store and the Coke store. But that's what my kids said as we left. And I said, well, don't get too attached to Las Vegas, guys, but I'm glad you had a good time. And then we kept driving. We hit the Grand Canyon. I think that's in the next shot. Yep. And um, who's been to the Grand Canyon? Tell, tell me, if, am I the only one that thinks when you're staring at it, this doesn't even look real? It's just so vast and gigantic and beautiful, but they could have laid out a painting. <laughs> it's just that's how it looks to me. I just... It's like the third time I've seen it. My wife never saw it before, and the kids never, never saw it, obviously, but we enjoyed that. Uh, do I have another picture? Oh, yeah. We stopped at a rest park and took a little picture. So there's us. Um, my wife doesn't even look sick. She's so pretty. And my kids are actually not fighting each other in that shot. That's wonderful. 
there's something about putting everybody into a Toyota Tundra <laughs> and driving, what is it, about 2,000 miles? <laughs> it, that kind of drives you crazy. But we actually have had a really good time and um, got in on Friday and now are here among you. And we are excited to be here. Thank you so much for everything y'all have done. You've offered help. Many have helped us. And uh, you prayed for us, and I appreciated that. I appreciate that very much. I'm going to, I don't know what kind of stereotypes you guys expected from us being from California, or if you're just blanketly forgiving us from being from California. I don't know. Um, that's okay, Whatever, however you're dealing with that. <laughs> when I told our church out there that we're coming to Texas, there's this one guy that came up to me, and I'm not exaggerating. He just comes up and says, Texas, huh? Good luck. I'm like, what, is it, what do you mean by that? I don't understand. Good luck. And then later, we're having a conversation again, and he says, all right. He, he leans in on me. This guy's name is Ron. He's really serious. He's like, okay. All right, Dan, you got to listen to me now. You need to go get yourself a boots and a hat. I just cocked my head at him. Well... You know, one of the elders, Carl, here told me, hey, well, we're going to have to get you fitted for some boots. So that's kind of in the works. However, um, this thing's got to get, the swelling's got to go down before I start trying to fit this into a boot. So I'm not going to do it. And then he leaned in a little closer. Like I didn't hear him or wasn't taking him seriously enough. And he said, and a hat. Okay. Okay. And then I thought to myself, how would you all feel if I showed up this morning in cowboy boots and a hat? <laughs> okay, some of you would have been excited. Some of you being like, this boy is trying way too hard. <laughs> Slow down. Easy. And I, I, just, I just amused to myself and just thinking about the stereotypes and expectations. I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe some of you in the back of your head expected us Californians to show up in flip-flops and, and surfer shorts or something. I don't know. But most people in California don't walk around like that. And I had to tell, I told this guy, I said, Ron, you know, I've been to Texas a couple times now, and some people got hats on. There's one, but not everyone. And he just kind of went, <laughs> okay, well, I want you to fit in. I'm like, all right, well, whatever. You live in Norco, California, back off. But anyway, <laughs> expectations, things that we want to see or think or feel about certain situations is a little bit of what I want to talk about today. And we've already heard the passage. Maybe you turn there, but I'd like to invite you to 1 Peter 5. If you want to look at it in your own Bible, we're going to unpack it a little more slowly. But what I want to show, show you is some of the expectations on pastoral ministry. Now, I recognize that about six weeks ago, uh, if you were here, Pastor Greg led you through 1 Peter, and you encountered 1 Peter 5. I am not showing you this passage today to like add to or correct anything he said or did there. I want to present this passage today just as an opportunity for me to let you hear my heart and what I understand God is telling me as we enter this new relationship with each other. Does that make sense? Is that okay? I'm glad nobody said no because that would have been awkward because I'm doing it anyway, but here we are. Peter's been talking about people suffering for all the right reasons, as opposed to suffering for being a jerk, suffering for uh, doing wrong. He says, we don't suffer because we're bad people doing bad things, but we find ourselves possibly experiencing suffering as we follow Jesus. 
Have you noticed that the world and Jesus rub each other the wrong way? Has that become obvious to you? If you are a follower of Jesus, you may begin to notice that the way the world around us works is different, and there will be friction. Peter's talking about that. He says, it actually brings glory to God and puts us in good company, because didn't Jesus suffer for being himself? In fact, that was his mission. Excuse me. It demonstrates when we suffer for the sake of the gospel, following Jesus, we, sh- we demonstrate that we trust God enough and make Him more important than the pain and awkwardness or whatever it is that we experience as followers of Jesus in our communities, in our workplaces, in schools, wherever we might encounter it. And then he turns a corner here and says, So I exhort the elders among you. Exhort is a fun word. How many of you use the word exhort in common everyday language? When you go to, really? You do? Oh, that's awesome. So I can imagine. So I used to work as an Amazon delivery driver, and I don't, I don't remember ever walking up to the, 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 you know, the dock of all the trucks pulled up and saying, I exhort you to move faster. I never did that. It's not super common, but if you make use of it, cool. <laughs> I've never got into that. But the word literally is about an urging or summoning. It's a charge. It's a serious charge. So he's saying, I charge you. I exhort the elders among you. Now, the fun thing about this passage is that it uses three words to describe the position that sometimes we call pastor. It's kind of interesting. The first one, he says, the elders among you. That come, the Greek word is presbuteros. Some of you might have heard of the Presbyterian church. That's where we get that word. Presbuteros is a, someone who has authority, administrative authority in the church. He's saying, you guys who have that, who've been given that authority. It, it, we have that word elders, and you might be tempted to think, these must be the oldest people in the room. That's not necessarily what it means. It means people who are longer in the faith and have been given this kind of authority. So it isn't referring to just older guys in that sense. He says, as a fellow elder, Peter says, and a witness to the sufferings of Christ, because he did, as well as a partaker of the glory that it is that is to be revealed, that is the coming of Christ and the reward for all the suffering we go through, here comes the charge. He says, verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. The flock of God is those who are following Jesus, right? I would submit that it's also the people who will follow Jesus. Shepherding is an important word, and I'll explain what I mean. It comes from the word poiamonite, which is where we get the idea of shepherding or the word pastor. It means to lead, like a shepherd leading sheep. How many of you have encountered sheep? Some of you? I personally have only encountered sheep once or twice. I have a, I have a, a brother-in-law who handles the agriculture department at a high school in Southern California, so I've encountered goats and sheep a little bit. Um, most everybody will tell me, tell me if I'm wrong, sheep are not the smartest animals on this planet. You've got to lead them to the food or they will starve. Am I, am I good? You got to lead them to the food or they will starve. They, they, don't, they don't survive out there in the wild by themselves. So we need people to, we call them, call them shepherds, to lead them, feed them, protect them. They can't really protect themselves very well and provide places of comfort and rest. And he's saying the flock of God, the people of God, the people who are following Jesus, 
You need to pasture them. You need to shepherd them. Lead them, feed them, protect and provide rest. This is referring to spiritual stuff. I am so blessed that this is a church that has breakfast burritos before the Sunday school hour. That is a blessing. That's not the kind of feeding, though, we're talking about, just to be clear, okay? Though that's good. So I'll unpack that a little bit more in a minute. He says, shepherd the flock of God. Provide them with spiritual leadership, spiritual nourishment, protection, and rest. Exercising oversight. This is another word, episcopontes or episcopos, overseeing. Making sure it gets done organizationally, making sure all that feeding, protecting, leading, all that stuff is happening in the right way. He's telling these people, these elders, use your God-given authority and position and giftedness to make sure God's sheep, God's people are cared for in every way. That's the what of the charge. And then he gets into the how. So first of all, pastors. To bring this into our context today, pastors should use their position and abilities and opportunities to lead people to or strengthen their faith in Jesus Christ. To lead people to or strengthen their faith in Jesus Christ. The pastor is to lead. Lead where? It's really simple. To Jesus. Over and over and over and over again. I don't know about you, but in my personal experience of following Jesus, as a five-year-old boy, I prayed a prayer, and I meant it, thank God, in which I said, forgive me of my sins, bring me to heaven someday, and lead my life from here on out. And then that was it, that was it, I was done, and I achieved moral perfection, and never deviated to this day as a (laughs) 46-year-old. I'm glad some of you are laughing. Donnie's back there starting to get a sour look on his face. What have we done? (laughs) We need to come to Jesus and keep coming back to him. Because we fall off the train. We get off the trap, trap, the track. (laughs) We lose sight of the way. We get into ourselves and our own worries and fears and our own wisdom and decision-making processes. And we make messes of our situations, and sometimes our whole lives. We need to keep coming back to Jesus. A pastor is one who leads people. I'm I'm not against having like great vision. Let's reach 10,000 people in this neighborhood, stuff like that. I I love, you know, big faith and big prayers. But the simple, down to the bottom, what's the basic job here? Bring people who need Jesus to Jesus. Bring people who are following Jesus back and keep them focused on Jesus. Look at shepherds. You know the classic idea of a shepherd? I know they don't do this anymore, but the, the, the idea of a staff with a little hook on it. You know what that hook's for? Come here. Back to Jesus. Come here. Get, get over here. Stop, stop straying. Get over here. Get over here. I've got a little dog. Despite the fact that we've had this dog for a decade, he still thinks he's in charge. I got him on a leash. I'm constantly, come here, come here, stop it, come here. It was fun staying in a La Quinta Inn, which is pet friendly, right? So everyone else has a dog too. So I'm trying to walk up the hallway at 10 o'clock at night, and other people are walking their dogs. and Sometimes we're like the little dog. We got to be pulled back. 
brought back. The pastor's job is to point people to Jesus over and over and over and over again. The pastor feeds. Feeds with what? The Word of God. Not our cool, exciting ideas, our opinions, but the Word of God. How else can I point you to Jesus, the living Word, than coming to the written Word inspired by Him? What else am I going to talk about? I mean, I could bring up a self-help book up here and try to tell you how to live your best life now, but am I really feeding you what you need? No. To follow Jesus, you need to hear from Jesus, not from me. So my job is to feed you with the Word of God, to dispense the Word of God, to explain the Word of God and show you how it works in your life. The pastor is to protect. The shepherd needed that staff to beat back the wolves and whatever else might be coming at the sheep. What am I going to do? Find the false teachers around town and beat them with a stick? Sometimes I'm tempted. But no, that's not how that works. How that works is this. I'm here to help you when you encounter heresy, when you encounter something that's false. How do I do that? Again, point you to the Word. (laughs) Show you what the Word of God actually says. Here's how to understand what the Bible says about that, what people are saying out there, pointing out the error that we encounter, sometimes within ourselves or from the outside. So I do it through answering questions, through warning, through the preaching and teaching, through helping you sort out all the stuff that's going on, all the messages that are out in the world. We also provide rest, again, reminding you of the gospel found in the Word of God. We experience it in worship together. We relate to it in prayer. The pastors are to make sure these things are being done. Sharing the work also with qualified people and training up others to do this work as well. It isn't all up to me. This idea of oversight, commonly in the Bible, is something that is shared. You guys have Carl and Donnie as well. You have Jubal. And a lot of you can... In, in Bible studies and groups, have leaders that can share and help you understand. See, this isn't all about one person, and I'm thankful for that. Because if it was all up to me, I might as well resign right now because it ain't going to work. You know that great story about Moses in the book of Exodus? When he's out there trying to solve everyone's problems, and his father-in-law comes up and literally says, what you're doing is not good. You're going to burn yourself out and all these other people out. And the Bible gives us a clear picture of sharing The idea of oversight. See, some churches, they get mixed up about this. They get this idea about who's the professional minister, right? I've been in churches like that. Oh, here's a visitor. Get the pastor, right? Here I am leading somebody to Jesus. Damn, come here. Here's a visitor. I'm like, okay, sorry. We'll talk about heaven and hell later. Hi. Shake your hand. And people get, oh, here's a person with questions. Get the pastor. Oh, here's a person with a marital problem. Get the pastor. If it was all up to one human being, we're doing it wrong. Especially, especially if that human being is doing a good job of pointing to Jesus, who is the solution to all our problems, we we can understand that this is something that can be shared. If we are all pointing to Jesus, and I believe Donnie and Carl point to Jesus. I believe your small group leaders point to Jesus. So, Sharing the work with qualified people and training other people to do it too is what the role of a pastor is. So as a pastor, let me bring this down to the so what. Okay, you ready for this? As a pastor, I recognize my duty, my calling is to follow Jesus 
and to lead you to follow Jesus and use my assigned position to lead and encourage faith in people, all the people that God puts around me, in fact, and primarily do it through the teaching and application of God's Word. I can promise you today that I will be honest about what I believe the Bible to say. And I will not soften it because I think you can't take it. I will not make it harder than it actually says that it is. I will do my best to give it to you clear. This is what's, what it's about. This is what I believe is going on in here. And I ask you to hold me accountable to that when I fail. And I did say when I fail. Because I will. I am not a perfect human being. I will mess up. I will get full of myself one day and say stuff that's my opinion or something traditional or I don't know what, but somehow, at some point, I'm going to need to be held accountable. And I ask you to do that. So that is the what and the how. Let's get into the why and the motivation. Number two, pastors should do this hard work willingly and according to God's plan. Willingly and according to God's plan. Peter charges the pastors here to do the work of pastoring willingly and according to God's will. Verse 2, continuing, he says, Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you to do. Or, as some translations will say, according to God's instruction. Again, I am not the head shepherd. Jesus is. So I've got to follow his lead. Follow his instructions. Do things his way. And that means, therefore, in part, that serving God shouldn't be something I do because, quote, no one else will do it. Or because I have to. Or anything like that. So, while that's about me, I'm going to ask you guys to think about the stuff that you do. Those of you who are involved in serving in some way through church or community, whatever it is, let me ask you what could be, for some of us, a hard question. Why do you do it? And I submit to you that if you're doing it because you, quote, have to, or no one else is doing it, so here I am, then you shouldn't be doing it. Now Donnie's getting scared back there. Dan, the whole kids' ministry just resigned. <laughs> I don't think that'll happen. But I think this is true. When we give in to, okay, I'll do the thing because you're guilting me into it, all right, I'll do that thing over there because no one else is doing it. Honestly, maybe that thing doesn't need to be done. If God hasn't provided us with the people to, who are willing to give of themselves willingly to it, we've got to address that stuff. And that certainly has to come from the pastoral office as well. Let me tell you, if your only reason for doing anything, even outside church stuff, is because no one else will, or I have to, people notice. Can you imagine if my wife and I are out on a nice romantic date? I think I had one of those before, like seven years ago, before we had a kid. No, I'm kidding. I've, we, we, we've had a few. We're sitting over dinner. There's candlelight. There's a medium rare ribeye in front of me. There's a nice pasta in front of her. And she just looks up at me and goes, why do you love me? And I said, well, no one else will. 
so I have to. Horseradish? <laughs> How would she feel? That isn't love. Am I right? That's not love. When we come together and there's things that need to be done, whatever it might be, greeting, kids' ministry, baptism preparations, communion serving, teaching, preaching, sharing, counseling, whatever. If there's an attitude in the person serving that's, ah, no one else is going to do this, so here I am, that will come out and people notice. And let me tell you, the world sees it too. And they know we're over here saying that, you know, we believe in the love of God and we love each other with God's love and a bunch of stuff like that. But when they see that kind of half-heartedness, they see hypocrisy. We must serve in a way that is according to God's plan and is in a willing act of service. So here's something that's fun to remind ourselves. It is a privilege to be used by God. It is a privilege to be used by God. It won't always be fun. It sometimes will be very hard. Sometimes we will feel like we're not being thanked, and we won't be. Sometimes we won't know what to do, and we struggle. But let's remember that Jesus did what he did, which is far harder than anything we're doing here this morning, for the joy that was set before him. The joy set before him of pleasing his Father and obtaining a family, the salvation of God's people. So I, I must recognize my calling to oversee you as a pastor according to God's instructions, and do it willingly, not because I am obligated. I will grant you that I am obligated to God. But you, I owe you nothing but love. And I want to live and act and serve in that way. One of the ways that this may come out for me personally is this. There are aspects of pastoring that I love, and some that I don't hate any of it, but doesn't get my engine running quite as the same way. Here's an example. I love to teach and preach. I love it. That gets me excited. And it has to because I'm naturally an introvert. And as an introvert, I'm committing to stand in front of you on some days for 45 minutes or longer and talk at you. That's weird for introverts. But I love doing it. But you know what? Early in my ministry, what terrified me when I got that call Dan, Bob's in the hospital. Go see him. Now, I love Bob, okay? I, I, I care for Bob. But I had this thing in my head that I needed to go into the hospital and sit down with a guy who's possibly dying and say the words that will make him feel better. And, he, and when he looks at me and says, why is God letting this happen? I'll have the answer. And I'll say it. And he'll go, oh, wow, thank you, Pastor Dan. Oh, I feel so much better. And you know why it scared me? Because I don't know what to say <laughs> to make people just feel better. And I thought that was my job, and I didn't know what to do, and I was awkward, and I wanted to avoid situations like that. But I recognized caring for the sheep. I've got to go. And I've learned since then that in most situations, people suffering don't care what you have to say. They just need somebody there. And that's pretty cool. But I had to get over that. I had to learn that. I had to experience that. 
now I have a, I'm a willing person to go. But I had to learn that experience. Our willingness to serve should translate into an eagerness. But before I get into the next point, I'm going to ask you to hold me accountable for this. Just like what I said before. That this will, being willing to serve in all the ways that are needed. So please hold me accountable. Also, pastors should serve God and His people without being motivated by what can be gained by it now. By what can be gained by it now. Verse 2 continued, Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. He's referring to money here. <clears throat> yes. Which is complicated because as a pastor here, I am being paid for it. So you're all squinting your eyes and saying, you better not want it. <laughs> and I'm going to be honest with you. I kind of like feeding and housing my family. It's kind of a thing I feel responsible to do, right? And, and I don't think that you guys are going to write the paycheck and hand it to me and me going, no, 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 no. Yeah, I'm going to take it. So what's going on? How do I apply this? Jesus and Paul, first I'm going to say, agree that those who serve full-time working for the church ought to be compensated for it. And that's not a bad thing. But it is a bad thing to be motivated to serve God for money. It's kind of a distinction, but it's an important one to consider. And how does it show up? Let me, let me just tell you. The temptation to love money more than people to consider this a job and not a ministry, a lifestyle, a service, is a terrible trap that many fall into. And it shows up in a lot of really funky ways. Uh, the temptation to see money as a reward for how well you're doing. There are pastors who think, well, I'm getting really well paid by the church now. I must be doing a good job. That's the sign of doing a good job. And they use the money as a measuring rod. Or the other way, when the money is tight, I must not be doing it right. Something's wrong with what I'm doing. And letting everything rise and fall on the money and ministry is not to be evaluated that way. It can be a temptation. And it can be a temptation for other things besides money. There are many ways that when we're serving each other and we're in relationship with each other that we might use as a measuring rod for how well things are going besides money that aren't right. How popular you are. How much power and influence you have. There are some people, and I know that's not really possible here, but there are some people who like to sit back and say, well, I'm going to speak up at the business meeting and everybody better listen because I'm a founding member. Any founding members here? I didn't think so. We've been around a little too long. Right? No. But I've seen that at churches. I'm more important because of how long I've been here. I'm more important because of the size of my particular ministry within this church. I'm more important because of all the things I do. And I look around at the people that do less than me and I say, hmm, I should get two votes at the meeting. She should get half a vote. <laughs> Nobody comes right out and says that, but that's a feeling. It's, in, it's insidious, and I've seen it among pastors. I've gotten together at pastors' meetings, and there's that little temptation. It's not a little. It's actually big. Who's got the bigger church? Who's got the, the widest ministry reach? These temptations create very toxic environments because we're not pointing at Jesus anymore. 
We're pointing at ourselves. As a pastor, I am not to serve God and serve you because of the money or use it as a measure of the health of our church. Please hold me accountable. My position as a pastor is not it is to be about Jesus, His Word. And it's an honor for me to enter into and with a willing and eager heart this relationship with you. And therefore, number four, pastors should lead by example and not attempt to control. We get that from verse three. It says, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Now, this doesn't mean that the elders don't have some kind of God-given authority, because they do. But it doesn't mean I have the right to try to control you and use force of authority. I must remember that you do not belong to me. You belong to God. What does he say? Pastor the flock of God among you. We all belong to God together. So when you hear me say things, because I will say this, my church, please understand, when I say my church, I'm using the same phrasing that you could use when you say my church. That's all I mean by it. I say that because people get sensitive about that. I had somebody once come up to me and say, it's not your church, it's God's church. I'm like, I, yeah, I, I know, and I appreciate that. But when you talk about us to people, what do you say? Oh, you should come to my church. I can say the same thing, and that's all I mean by it. Is that clear? Is that cool? I'm not saying you belong to me. I'm not saying that at all. Because I know that's not true. You belong to Christ, and so do I. We're in that together. So, since that's true, I am to teach you, I am to charge you, warn you with God's word, not my opinion, not human tradition, or because, quote, I'm in charge. Instead, I'm supposed to be showing you what the word says and being an example of it before you. Jesus talks about this. At one point, a couple of his disciples, James and John, specifically asked Jesus for authority. He says, when your kingdom hits the ground, Jesus, right and left seats, here we are. We want to be helping you with that. And he said this in Mark 10, 42 through 45, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whatever, excuse me, whoever would be great must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the ultimate example of this. He washed feet. He provided what they needed. He taught patiently and lovingly and eventually died for his people. If Jesus didn't flaunt his authority, how can any of us, as his followers, try to flaunt any authority we suppose that we might have? If our very Lord and Savior chose not to, how dare we? Unfortunately, pastors do it. Longtime members do it. People who think they deserve it because they've done X, Y, Z, whatever it might be. And it shouldn't be the way among us. So I recognize my calling as your pastor is one in which I am not to be your Lord. Please hold me accountable to this. Now, many people might say, well, if you're not asserting your authority, 
and you're not trying to get something out of it, and you see success as people loving each other and following Jesus and not having anything to really do with you, why do the hard work? Why suffer for it? Well, number five, pastors should be motivated by Christ's approval and reward. Verse four says it. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading cloud, excuse me, crown of glory. So reward's not off the table, right? But the important thing is, is where is it coming from? Do I consider myself a good pastor because how many high fives and amens I get from you or from the Lord's approval? From the size of my paycheck or when Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant? I must recognize, as we all must, that Jesus is the head of his church. It's his church. And what we do is recognized and rewarded by him. This is what Jesus meant when he said, store up your treasure in heaven. Some of you might be familiar with that. In other words, what you do, you do for the kingdom to come and not for the kingdom that is here. You know the old song, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. Our destination is there. Our reward waits for us there. One of the signs of maturity is delayed gratification. And I see that. I have little kids. Delayed gratification is a completely foreign concept. Completely. This should warm your heart, but it's an example of what I'm talking about. I saw you guys in May, right? End of May. And we went home. And my little three-year-old girl started asking once a week at least, are we going to Texas? (laughs) Yes, not now. Every time we were packing up to do something, let's go, go, let's go get in the car. Are we going to Texas? <laughs> no, not right now. We're, we're going to the movies. Are we going to Texas? One day she stubbed her toe or something and she's crying. And I put, put, put her in my lap and said, it's okay, sweetie. Ah, it's not. And I'm like, what do you want? To go to Texas. <laughs> okay, fine. We will. <laughs> August. (laughs) Some of you have experienced this from my little boy. Is there a pool there? Every hotel on the way here. Is there a pool there? Is there a pool? Maybe, but we might not have time. But we might have time. And when I say might to Joel, that is just under cutting your hand and doing a blood oath with him that we will get in the pool. (laughs) Is there a pool there? I don't know. And then, of course, we get into the hotel. He walks around. There's a pool! And then he he tries to be nice and says, I'm fine if we don't get in it. Which I think is straight manipulation. He's just trying to... ah, I don't know. Being willing to wait is a sign of maturity. And that's true spiritually as well. We get caught up in the wanting now. I want recognition now. I want the gifts that ought to come with how hard I'm working now. And God says, you don't always get that. Sometimes you got to wait. But he promises something beautiful. It's worth the wait. The joy set before us. The reward that is to come. We don't serve each other, and I am not to serve for what we get out of it here. We do it for what Jesus will reward us with 
there. And I ask you to hold me accountable to that as well. So that's me, a pastor, right? Some of that had stuff to do with you as well, and I hope you picked up on it. I hope I made it clear. But God transitions here through Peter to give you something he expects from you as well. Number six, churches should follow the lead of faithful leaders. Verse five, he says, Likewise, you who are younger, that's in contrast to the elder statement. It doesn't necessarily mean how old you are. Again, be subject to the elders, those who are leading you in faith. Again, not demanding that the pastor be the oldest man in the room. He's saying here that while this elder, what we call elders or pastors, is not to flaunt their authority, the congregation is to accept the authority that is there. Not because they deserve it or I deserve it, but because of God's appointing out of respect for him. Therefore, what does that mean? It means receive the teaching, receive the care, receive the help, be willing to ask for it, be willing to follow their lead in the word. And while you may sometimes disagree, you do it with love. Now, you remember me saying, hold me accountable to teaching you from the word. I'm not perfect, and I will sometimes get it wrong. How do, you do, how do you address that with me? Well, what I present to you, what I submit to you is this. If you hear me say something, and you look into your Bible, and you find yourself disagreeing with how you read the text, and this is going to happen, okay? Going to happen. Please do not conclude that I am the Antichrist in the flesh. Okay? Instead, remember Jesus saying something? Do for others what you would have them do for you. I know there's some sick weirdos out in the world who actually like it when people walk up to them and say, you are so stupid. But I'm not one of them, okay? So I would ask that you come to me and say, and, and have a conversation with me in which you're saying, I don't see the text saying that. And let's work it together. I'm going to ask you, and I'm going to tell myself this too, let's come together willing to be ready to admit that we are wrong. Okay? Me and you. Because just like me, when Christians read the Bible together, at no point in any of our lives are we going to get to the point where we read the Bible and it no longer challenges us anymore. And we know it all and got it down perfect. So let's come together with that humility. I pledge to you that I will, and I'm asking you to come to me with that humility too. Let's seek to understand it together. And where we might need to change our thinking, let's both be willing to do it. I will come with that, and I'm asking you to do that too. If we do what it says here, it can totally work. Let's read on. Clothe yourselves, all of you, me, you, everybody, with humility toward one another. For, and he's quoting, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I don't want to be on the end of God's opposition. So let's go for the grace that he offers when we are humble. If we're, so I heard somebody say, if we're humble, we won't stumble. I kind of like that. So here's what it means. I lead with love for God and toward God with you, and love for you, pointing not to me, but to the Word. If I do that, I'm someone you should follow. 
as I do that with you. You hold me accountable with love and respect, and I will listen to you, and you will listen to me, and we will work together. You can tell me when you think I'm wrong, but you do it like you would like it done to you. We both enter the conversation recognizing that one of us or both might be wrong. And just like the encouragement for pastors, God promises great things for us when we do this. Verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that, this is good, at the proper time, remember it's his timing and in his way, he may exalt you. So verse 7 is possible because of that. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. As we accept each other with love and follow Jesus together, we can expect blessing from God as we lock arms and walk together in this life. As we learn to bring our fears and our anxieties to God and not make each other bear them, He will show Himself more than what we need. As we accept each other with love and follow Jesus together, we can accept great blessing. I look forward to this journey with all of you. Some of you, I don't know all of your stories, but some of you might need to start this journey. Maybe you've been here a while or you're visiting or I don't know what your story is, but you're just checking out church. Let me encourage you. Let me exhort you. Jesus is who you need. And you can experience him among the church, but just coming to church, having some kind of rhythm of coming to church does not save does not get your sins forgiven, does not enter you into a relationship with God. What does is accepting that what Jesus did on the cross pays for your sin. So you have to admit that you have sin. We all do. Join the club, literally. Two, Christ died innocently so that your sin can be forgiven because the penalty of sin is death. And if you just ask God, forgive me because of what Jesus did and come into my life and lead me from here on out, he will come into your life and he will begin a work in you today. I encourage you to do that. I exhort you to do that. If you haven't, if you've been coming here but you haven't joined the church as a member, I exhort you to do that too. Because following Jesus is best done in community as we support each other, love each other, and help each other along. To join the church, you simply just to say, I want to, and you become baptized. And once baptized, as we'll do in a minute, we'll share in communion together as a symbol of the unity that God has given us. All of this is readily available to you in Christ today. Can I pray for you? Father, we thank you for this time again. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift of your church and the fellowship within it. I ask God that I as a pastor and this congregation would keep our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, upon whom everything stands or falls. Please give us that firm foundation. Help us to rest in that foundation. As we enter into this time of celebrating communion, God, we ask that you would remind us in, these, in this activity what you've done for us and our security in you and our unity among each other. We bless you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.